Please be seated. Second Kings chapter 21 tonight. If you're with us this evening and you don't have a Bible, there are men coming up the aisles right now and they have Bibles. And if you just get their attention by waving to them, they'll get a Bible into your hands and you can follow along with your eyes this evening as well as hearing the word. We stopped uh, last week as we looked at the reign of one of the great kings of the southern kingdom of Judah, Hezekiah, and all the great characteristics of his reign. His reign was followed by the worst king that Judah ever had up to that point, a man by the name of Manasseh, unfortunately Hezekiah's son, and uh, he didn't seem to learn anything from his father, And uh, but we were... Uh, uh, I think our hearts were blessed to realize in the book of Second Chronicles that deals uh, more fully with the account of Manasseh's life that he did repent at the end of his life. And we do like happy endings. I know God likes happy endings to life. And, and uh, he turned to God late in life and tried to undo the damage that he had done for so many years. And then we're told there in uh, verse 18, Manasseh, rested with his fathers and was buried in the garden of his own house in the garden of Uzzah. And then his son Ammon reigned in his place. And Ammon was 22 years old when he became king, and he reigned two years in Jerusalem, a short reign. His mother's name was uh, Meshulameth, and the daughter of uh, Haruz of Jotba. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord, as his father Manasseh had done, so he walked in all the ways that his father had walked, and he served the idols that his father had served, and he worshipped them, and he forsook the Lord God of his fathers, and did not walk in the way of, his, uh, of the Lord. And then the servants of Ammon conspired against him, and they assassinated him, killed the king in his own house. But the people of the land then executed those who conspired against the king and assassinated him. And then the people of the land made his son Josiah king in his place. Now the rest of the acts of Ammon, which he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah? And he was buried in his tomb in the garden of Uzzah, uh, where his father was buried, and then... Uh, Josiah, his son, reigned in his place. And Josiah was uh, the uh, eighth of the eight great good kings that the southern kingdom of Judah had. And probably in terms of godliness and um, just just being great for God, he uh, he is would only if he's second to anyone, he's only second to King David. And it's our privilege tonight to. Uh, turn from this wickedness that went on for so many years to then watch this young man by the name of Josiah begin a tremendous reign among God's people. Josiah was eight years old when he became king. Cocoa Krispies for everyone. <laughs> Pop-Tarts. <laughs> so very, very young to become a king. Uh, it's going to be interesting as we go through his life here in these early verses that it's very important to God that we know the various ages that Josiah made significant decisions for God related to his life. So surely becoming king at eight years of, uh, of age, he was surrounded by 
kind of guardians and, and uh, caretakers related uh, to him. But he began even that young in his life with a tremendous zeal for God, a tremendous bent uh, toward the Lord. I think that sometimes, you know, here he is, his grandfather was the worst king that Judah ever had prior to his repentance. We're talking about evil that was going on on the streets of Jerusalem and throughout Judea, that if you were able to behold it for a day or a week as a Christian, you would feel defiled for life. The sin that was being done openly on, on the streets, openly on the hilltops and the mountaintops, and just how base things had become. And his grandfather repented in the late season of his life, but his father then followed right behind the evil side. He didn't uh, didn't learn from his his father's repentance. And so Ammon follows in all of this wickedness. And sometimes we can be raised, and it's increasingly the case. It's always been true, and it's true all over the world. People are raised in environments that are just terrible, terrible environments. A dog shouldn't be in those environments, shouldn't be raised by those people. And yet human beings are raised by those people. And the way that God so often works that together for good, where you would look at perhaps a childhood and say, man, I wish that anyone, I wish the wolves had raised me rather than the people that raised me. And for legitimate reason, not because we... Uh, didn't have ideal or perfect parents. But there's, there's some real difficulty that goes on. One of the things that can happen is that when a child is raised around that kind of wickedness, it forces them to make a choice related to it earlier in life than others sometimes have to because they haven't been exposed to the temptation or the choice until later on in life. And so you can have this young child that looks and even at the earliest part of his life when God is working, God's got a call on his life and he can look at things and say, I don't know much about the world yet. I don't know much about being a king. All I know is that I don't want to be anything like my grandfather and I don't want to be anything like my father. And when your grandfather and your father are wicked, then that's a good start. So here's this young boy. He doesn't know much. But what he does know is he wants to spend his life living for God. And he's going to make those kind of decisions through his life. Those of you who work and serve on Sunday mornings or through the week, you don't do it in the evening service because you're in the room right now. But in the children's ministry, and uh, and sometimes you can look and say, am I even getting through? Here's an eight-year-old that is going to change an entire nation of God's people for a generation because of a decision that he could make at eight years of age. I think it was Spurgeon who spoke of the difference between ministering to adults and ministering to youth. You know, the great kind of glory and attention is given to a room like this and somebody that stands behind a pulpit like this before adults. But I think Spurgeon had it right, and I believe it's him that said it. He said, oh, oh, he said, oh no, he said, the real work is being done with the children. Their entire life is in front of them. In the sanctuary, I deal with the remnants of people's lives. What's left? <laughs> And it's true. So it's, 
a great encouragement. And he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jedidah, the daughter of Adaiah of Bozkath. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, and he walked in all. That's a wonderful word to have spoken concerning us. In all the ways of his father David, he did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. This good king never deviated from complete commitment to the Lord and obedience to the Lord. Now, it came to pass in the 18th year of King Josiah. So we got 18 years. We add it to the eight and we realize he's 26 years old when he makes this decision. And he uh, that the king sent Shaphan, the scribe, the son of Azaliah, the son of Meshulam, to the house of the Lord, saying, Go up to Hilkiah, the high priest, that he may count the money which has been brought into the house of the Lord, which the doorkeepers have gathered from the people. So very early in his reign, he his great concern is uh, for the temple, the place that God had ordained that the worship of him was to be centered. It represented the presence of God among uh, the children of Israel. And so without a doubt, the temple had fallen into uh, terrible neglect and disrepair under King Manasseh. Remember, he reigned for decades, 55 years, if my memory serves me right. His son follows him for a couple of years. So, you know, the greatest building in the world is going to fall into disrepair over that period of time. And so he has a concern now that this gets repaired. And apparently the repair of the temple uh, occurred related to the free will offerings of the people. Uh, or maybe it might have been that they placed a, uh, a kind of a receptacle at the entrance of uh, the temple in order to receive uh, offerings from the people for the very purpose of restoring uh, the temple itself, just as uh, occurred when we saw in the past through King Josiah. So he wants the temple to be re uh, repaired. Again, this is an indication of his love for God, uh, the things of God. And so he sends this official to uh, uh, check up on the source of, of the funds here. And then he said, let them deliver it into the hand of those who are doing the work and those who are overseers in the house of the Lord, let them give it to those who are in the house of the Lord doing the work to repair the temple. And so the money was to be counted. There was an accountability here. But then he said, give it to the carpenters, the builders, the masons to buy timber and hewn stone to repair the house. However, there need be no accounting made with them of the money delivered into their hand because they deal faithfully. So the money was to be counted when it was in the oversight of the priests. <laughs> so I don't know what that says about his trust of that. But he said, once the money's been counted and we know it's been received, uh, once we move it from the white-collar folks to the blue-collar folks, we know the blue-collar folks are going to handle it right. These people that have been contracted to work on the temple, he knew just as Josiah did, these are trustworthy people. And so deliver it to them so they can uh, finish and complete the work that they've been given to do. Now, the chronology of Josiah's growth, I'm going to lay it out a little bit here, a little closer to the front end so we can uh, notice as it, we go through. So he becomes a king at eight years of age. Uh, Second Chronicles tells us that he began to seek the Lord at the age of 16. 
he began his cleansing of the land of idolatry, which we're going to get to in just a minute or so, at about the age of 20. He calls for the repairing of the temple here at the age of 26. And it's fascinating to me that God is, is very important to God, that we notice and are aware of the age of Josiah at each of these kind of major events that occurred in his life and in Judah's history. It tells us about him at 8 years old, 16 years old, 20 years old, 26 years old. And I think that surely this is intended to be a great encouragement to the youth among God's people, to younger people that constitute the body of Christ. Encouragement to surrender your life to the Lord as early as you know to surrender your life to the Lord and then to believe the Lord for great things to be accomplished in your life and through your life. And so here's this God who protected and guided and empowered an eight-year-old boy into becoming maybe the greatest king in the history of Judah, maybe in all of Israel uh, altogether. And it's intended to be an encouragement that God will do the same thing for us and our calling. We may not be called to be a king, but we're called to be something for God. And that God will be faithful to make us great and effective in that something if we will step into it and the earlier the better. I think that sometimes we forget how young the disciples were when they began to follow Jesus. I think that sometimes when you're reading it maybe as a teenager or something like that, I don't know what, you know, that's too far back for me to remember what I thought about it, but you can look at it and and think they're a certain age, probably a lot older than they were. And then you get to be my age, 55 years old, and you read about the disciples and all, and you kind of think they're in their 40s. These were very, very young men. Jesus began his public ministry at 30 years old and died on the cross at the age of 33. The Apostle John was probably no older than his, in his late teens when he began to follow Jesus. And all of them virtually were in their 20s. And God called that age group to become his apostles. And so it's important for us. We can sometimes look, and I think especially in a church like this, where it's been around for a little while, 25 years, we praise the Lord for that and for all of his grace. But sometimes we can begin to look and think that these positions or these steps of faith or these opportunities for ministry are only for people like 50 and above. No, you begin your ministry as soon as you're aware that you have that ministry and then talk with one of the pastors or one of the leaders about what your next step looks like in obeying the Lord. And so the importance of this, this was a man a young man who started early, and the earlier the better, because the earlier we're giving ourselves wholeheartedly to God's call upon our lives, the earlier we do that, the greater the protection, our times being focused on the things of the Lord, and it protects us from the plans and the ideas that the world has for us. And they have plans for our lives, too, and that the devil has for our life, too. It's a funny thing I look back now, as a, and I don't want to make this all about me, but how can I make an illustration? I, no, I know me best than anybody else. There's a funny thing as a kid. 
And I mean, as a very young kid, we were in and out of all kinds of foster homes, and some of them were great and some of them were terrible. They should, should have whipped some of those people in it for the money. But I remember the first time I got taken to church at a foster home. And God just made that thing just explode. I can describe the service for you today. And I don't know how many years. I mean, we're talking about decades and decades and decades ago. And I always had this thing in my heart, no matter what I was in the middle of, no matter what was going on in my family or what was happening and all, there was just some protection that God kept upon me. Maybe not physically in a, in a way or mentally or something like this, because you see and you're in the middle of all of this stuff and all, but there was just this sense that I've been made for God and I've been made to serve Him. I wouldn't even know how to put it into words in those early years. I can only make sense of it now. And how God can reach into a life. And I know nothing, but I'm trying to be faithful to God's call on my life. And to heed that and to watch that in our children and in our grandchildren. And to nurture that in their life. What God can do in, in youth. And so here is this great... Great man, and the Lord tells us about these ages, and in order to encourage us as early as possible, step out into that. I, I'll bear witness to my uh, stupidity of of, uh, of being raised in a little bit in junior high and in, in high school around the things of the Lord and then walking away from them as soon as I got out of the house because I thought there was something better out into the world. I didn't go out into debauchery or I didn't become, you know, it wouldn't be something that anybody would write a book about or anything like that. But I thought I knew a little bit more than God. And to head out in there, and it didn't take me very long to realize this is, in the words of the writer of the book of Ecclesiastes, this is at its best emptiness and frustration, vanity and vexation of spirit. There is nothing to be found out here that I want to, to, to invest my life in in any way. And I had to go through a few things to discover that. I just want to say to anybody and, and the young persons that are being raised in the church, there is nothing that is valuable, nothing so rewarding, so great a blessing as to live for God and fulfill his purposes in your life. Everything else is wounding. Everything else is damaging. Everything else is emptiness and it's frustration. So I like this this young king, the bold steps that he took. So we look at him at eight years old and we think, all right, eight years old and all. But here to, at 16, 20, 26, to lead an entire nation out of decades of debauchery and wickedness and sin that was systemic now within the country. And he stood and people look and say, he can hardly shave and he's going to take these things on. And he took them on and God honored it and, and God blessed it. Great, great encouragement. And so he makes this uh, decision now here at the age of 26 that the temple was to be restored and, uh, and move that forward. In, and it was a key uh, event in his uh, life and in his ministry because of what unfolded from it in a key event for the nation of Judah. And so Hilkiah, the high priest, when these officials came to check on the progress and tell them what to do and all of this, Hilkiah, the high priest, 
said to Shaphan the scribe, the official of Josiah, I found the book of the law in the house of the Lord, and Hilkiah the high priest gave the book to Shaphan, and he read it. So while they're renovating the temple there, somebody stumbles on the law of Moses. They stumble on a Bible, a copy of the Bible. This gives you an idea of how anti-Yahweh Manasseh and Ammon was against the Lord that the scriptures were either destroyed or they were neglected or they were hidden as a result. And they get discovered now by the high priest in the renovation and he delivers it to the king's representative. I think it's amazing. You look at, you look at this scene and you think God's word lost in a temple? How does God's word get lost in a temple? When the t- that's what the temple is supposed to be about, is the teaching of God's word, the discipling of God's people, the obeying of God's word. You just think that's crazy. How could God's word get lost in a temple? And yet, you look at what's happening before our very eyes today, spiritually, not in all, but in much of the church in the United States of America, where there's that moving away from the teaching of the Word of God, deliberate decisions to minimize the Word of God, to hide the Word of God, to put it in this, push it into some kind of a background behind so many other things. And I think it's criminal, and when any church does that, it's a sign that that church is backslidden and headed toward apostasy. I think that there's something very wrong with a church. And I, and I don't say this to pat ourselves on the back because we teach the Bible up and down and sideways around here at Calvary Chapel. But I say it just is a warning to us today in the current environment, especially in the last 20 years. The unbelievable move away from teaching God's people the Bible. How many churches do you know of that teach the Bible from one end to the other? Again, I'm not saying to pat ourselves on the back on that, but it's disappearing, just like I did. (laughs) It's disappearing. It's going the way of the dodo bird. Think about it even in our own community. I'm not being critical about any particular church. But how many of you raised earlier in your Christian life where there was a Sunday morning service where the Word was taught? There was a Sunday evening service when the Word was taught. You could go to the midweek service and the Word would be taught. And now the whole thing gets reduced down to a 30-minute sermonette one time on a Sunday morning. And people are supposed to survive on that. The church is supposed to be great on that. The church is supposed to be nourished on that. The church is supposed to learn the Bible on that. And what has happened in a generation in the church in the United States of America ought to make Every single Christian, certainly every single pastor, weep over the trend that's going on today. What happens to the generation that follows? 
that won't endure 30 minutes of Bible teaching. How in the world can you expect to survive when the world is getting more and more and more wicked at the same time that the church is moving away from thoroughly furnishing Christians under every good work through the teaching of the word? Who's going to survive all of this? So it's the same crazy things that were happening 3,000 years ago. They're happening even today. I think about Paul when he wrote to Timothy and he said, Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, convince, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and teaching. Paul wrote again and he said, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, righteousness, that's what it does, and it uniquely does in the world, that the man of God may be complete and thoroughly equipped unto every good work. Yet 3,000 years ago, the word of God disappeared among God's people. I'm not talking about the world. And nobody even noticed because all the religious activity continued to go on, and they would have rather had the religious activity than the teaching of the Word of God. But I think it's important for us to realize this because the Bible says that this kind of thing is going to get worse and worse as the Lord's return draws near. Again, Paul wrote to Timothy, he said, For the time is going to come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they're going to heap up for themselves teachers, and they'll turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. Then he said to Timothy, you know, you, you, you better accept this. But you, in the middle of that kind of a context, you be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, and do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. So you're going to have a situation in the last days where the concern of the leaders of so-called Christian churches is going to become supremely what do the people want to hear rather than what does God want to say. And it's all around us, and it's wrong. And we need to know that it's wrong, because that needs to be a strong conviction in our life. What the Word of God does in a Christian's life is irreplaceable. You can throw all of the books on Christian living. You can throw all of the commentaries. You can control all religious activity, all film series, all anything you want into that Gap that's produced by taking the word away and you will never replace what the word of God alone can do in a Christian's life. The importance of the word of God. And I don't want anyone, especially those of you who are younger in this room, to ever later on in life walk into a church where there's one sermon a week and it's 30 minutes and you can't find a word the rest of the week and think that's okay for your life. It's not okay for your life. You won't make it. And it's fascinating to watch that it was as the word of God was diminished, the influence and in, in, uh, in, in the speaking of the word of God by Manasseh during his reign. The, the wickedness of the reign of Manasseh, it grew in the proportion that the word of God disappeared from being taught among God's people in the temple. They're always tied together. You remove the mirror of that word, mirror, mirror, as James said, on the wall. Who's the fairest of them all? 
What's right? What's wrong? What should I do here? What do you think of me as we pray to God before we open up the word? You remove that away from a society and that society is only going to get worse. Look at the United States of America in the last 60 years where the Word of God and the opportunity to come into contact with the Word of God, even in the Ten Commandments at a, 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 a courthouse, where the Ten Commandments are removed. The Word of God is removed from the realm of entertainment. It's removed from the public square. It's put in a separate category, and it can't be spoken in the vi- environments that everything else is spoken in. But look at the nation, for those of you who are old enough. Look at what has happened to the nation in direct proportion to the government and other officials minimizing the influence of the Word of God in the public square in the United States of America. And what is true of here is true of the rest of the world. You cannot remove the standard of God's Word and hope to escape a significant downward client, uh, slip morally among the people. So you hear the people, and it's like the same thing. And sometimes I hear it as a Christian, and you, the letters to the editor and everything, and look what's happened to the United States of America. Ever since they took prayer out of the public schools and all this stuff, all right, okay, how many times do we have to say this and all? And sometimes we can hear that over and over and over again, and we begin to not believe the truth of it. The degree to which the Word of God is removed is an influence from a people whose nation has been based upon the principles of that Word. That nation is going to slip down into wickedness. And so the importance of the Word of God. I think sometimes, well, forget it. So if I haven't made my point now, then it's not worth uh, making. So they discover this scriptures. And so Shaphan the scribe, he went to the king and he brought the king word saying, your servants have gathered the money that was found in the house and they've delivered it into the hand of those who do the work who oversee the house of the Lord. And so we took care of the project that you sent us to do. And then there's this new thing that happened. And Shaphan the scribe showed the king saying, Hilkiah the high priest has given me a book. It's, uh, he's given me a Bible. They found it in the, in the temple lost in there. And Shaphan began to read that book of the law before the king. Now, those of us who have been studying this since Genesis, and the law of Moses was Genesis through Deuteronomy, and Deuteronomy closed with those strong warnings of God. If you obey me, this is how I'm going to bless you. If you disobey me, then this is how, it's a cursed path, this is how I'm going to chastise you. And in that same law, the God warned them, and he said, these will be the characteristics Of you as a people. He didn't say if it happens. He knew they would do it. He said these will be the characteristics of the of your nation before I bring judgment on you because you become worse than the people I displaced from the land when you took the land. And these will be the characteristics that I'm going to judge you and remove you from from the land. And here is Josiah listening 
to his scribe, read this, and you can imagine, those of you who know the Bible here, as he's listening to one line, one verse, after another, after another, after another, after another, and he realizes this nation that he is overseeing, by and large, is completely on the wrong side of these promises of God. They're completely in the cursed side of things. And not only does he realize that we're on the cursed side of God's commandments, but everything that God said would mark the nation before he would judge them and allow them to be taken captive by the nation surrounding them were now going on every single day on the streets of Jerusalem and throughout Judea. So he listens to this, and as he's listening to this, I mean, you can imagine the sanctified horror that just begins to dawn on him as he's listening to all of this. And, and, and so we're told that as it happened when he, the king heard the words of the book of the law as a demonstration of how this grieved him, he recognized the danger that they were in, and so he tore his clothes as a, as a sign of grief, and then the king commanded Hilkiah the priest, Ahiakim the son of Shaphan, Achbor the priest of uh, Micaiah, uh, Shaphan the scribe, and uh, Azaiah the servant of the king, saying, Go inquire of the Lord for me, for the people and for all Judah concerning the words of this book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is aroused against us. And here's the reason why. Because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning this. His physical response, he feels this deep, deep um, sense of alarm over what he's just heard. And we know from verse 19, as we'll see here in a moment or two, that he also wept. Then his verbal response was, we need to find a prophet and find out if there is from the throne of God, is there any hope at all that remains for Judah? He didn't know what to do. So he recognizes immediately that judgment is hanging over the nation and uh, the wrath of God was going to fall upon them. And so he wanted to know what does he uh, do uh, related to this? And you think about his response to the Word of God, and this response has really, really blessed the heart uh, of God as he recognizes great distance that existed between the standard of God's Word and the people that he was uh, ruling there in the land and the lives that they were actually living, and it horrified him, and it turned him with a great, humble, soft heart to the Lord for instruction. Think about taking the Word of God and putting it up against just the, the news in a, on, in a daily newspaper in the United States of America, how it would horrify us if we looked at it with, with the same way. And so here is this, uh, this uh, judgment that is, is uh, there, and, and he's very disturbed by it and wants to know what in the world uh, do, do we do. It's fascinating um, so Hilkiah, verse 14, the priest, uh, Ahiakim, Akbor, Shaphan, and 
Azariah went to Huldah the prophetess, the wife of Shalom, the son of Tikva, the son of Harmas, keeper of the wardrobe. She dwelt in Jerusalem in the second quarter, kind of not in the rich section of Jerusalem, and they spoke with her. Now, this, this cracks me up. So they want to talk with God. They want to find out what's on the heart of God. They don't go to the high priest. He doesn't have that kind of a relationship with God at the moment. But they know there's a wife of a tailor on the poor side of town who knows God and hears God. And so they go to her to find out what the mind of God is. Isn't it wonderful? No matter what is happening in the world around us, whether people listen to us or they don't listen to us, whether they notice our walk with God or they don't notice our walk with God, but be able to live for God in such a way that if and when the time comes in an individual person's life, that when they really do want to come to know God, they do want to understand his word, that they know they can come to you. That's its own reward. We can't force people to listen to us. But to know that people know that I have a relationship with God, I love him, I know his word on some level. And if you ever get into a tough spot and you ever want to walk with God or know him the way that the Bible calls us to know him, you come to me and I'll help you out. That's a great, that's a rich way to live. And they knew if you want to know more about God or what God's saying, you go to this woman. She's not even the man of the house under the old covenant. He's a tailor. I mean, he's a tailor for the king. So if you're going to be a tailor, that's a pretty good job. But he's not in some high position. And she, on the basis of the culture, is in a lower position yet. Yet she hears God. They came to her. It's funny to me. How God works in giving his gifts and and the Bible talks in the New Testament about the gifts of the Holy Spirit that he gives to people and for God's glory. You think about in the New Testament how how everything here's this woman that this has this position hears from God. God speaks to her all of this. And I mean, the position that she has within the culture in the New Testament. When the Christians would gather together for church. Here, for many in the early church, many of the the Christians were slaves. And they were freed on the one day, on the Sunday, to go to church, if they were freed at all, on their day off. And then the slave masters became Christians as well. And so all week long, six days a week, there's the slave owner and there's the slave. And nobody misunderstood who was the boss and who was the slave. And then they both get born again. And they go to church on Sunday. And God gives the gift of prophecy and the gift of teaching to the slave. And he gives the gift of helps to the slave owner. And now the roles are completely reversed in his kingdom in that setting in order to communicate to everyone about the 
how he uses and who he uses and why he uses within the body of Christ. So the same kind of thing. They knew where to find her. So they bring all of this to her. And she said to them, thus says the Lord God of Israel, tell the man who sent you to me, thus says the Lord, behold, I will bring calamity on this place and on its inhabitants. All the words of the book which the king of Judah has read, I'm going to do it. Josiah, it's too late for you to turn the judgment back that's going to come upon these people because of their long history of wickedness and disobedience. And here's the reason that judgment's going to come. Because they have forsaken me and they've burned incense to other gods that they might provoke me to anger. And they've done it with all the works of their hands. And therefore, my wrath shall be aroused against this place and it shall not be quenched. Wow. That's a pretty heavy thing for Josiah to hear. You say, uh, Lord, is there, is there an exception anywhere here? Is there a but somewhere in here? Praise the Lord, there is. It's the first word of verse 18. But as for the king of Judah, different message for him, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, in this manner you shall speak to him, thus says the Lord God of Israel concerning the words which you have heard. Because your heart, we can't represent the heart of the nation, only our own heart. Because your heart was tender and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard my word, when you heard what I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that was your response to the word of God, that they would become a desolation and a curse. You responded further by tearing your clothes. You wept before me. I also have heard you. And surely, therefore, I will gather you to your fathers and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace and your eyes shall not see all of the calamity which I will bring on this place. And so they brought back word to the king. Here's an interesting situation in the life of Judah. They had crossed a line. Where God, when he looked at it, and only God can look at a nation in that way. And he can say, they crossed a line a long time ago where there is no turning back from what, what it is that they've done. He can look in the hearts of a nation and know that they will not turn back. Then it's interesting, Josiah, as he does this great reformation in the nation of, uh, uh, of Judah. He's going to accomplish that because he has the power of a king to accomplish it. But the hearts of the people in general were not behind him. They're just going to uh, wait him out until he died. Maybe we'll get another evil king. And they did a series of them. And that and we'll get to return to our wickedness. So the, the people in general were not on board with what it was that he was doing. And, and so uh, here he is, and God looks at the nation and says, no, the judgment is going to come. Uh, but because you've responded differently than the nation, I've got a different promise for you. I look at the world that we live in today, and I, I hope for a revival. I look at the youngest, younger generation, and I think that a lot of problems that they have, they brought on themselves. But I think they are, I wouldn't have wanted to be a young person 
and their generation. The access to sin, the temptation, the lack of a, a conscience in the corporate world and in the sin world to entice them into sin. The failure of adults, whether in public education or in politics, to make a stand and to protect them from things that they did not have the maturity to be able to handle at that young of an age and could only become victims of this sin to entice them. And how I long in my heart that God would give that generation a great revival, one more calling in from that generation and of the whole world. It's the great desire of my heart, one more great move of his spirit that they would be able to respond to this clear message of this way and the love of God and the plan of God as it versus this wicked and adulterous generation on this side. I hope that we might see just that. But then it can also be the case that we live in a world right now that God looks at. He could say to each one of us here, especially those of us who don't know the Lord tonight, and say, I'm going to bring judgment on this. And we know he is. This world is not going to turn. There's not going to be a revival. They don't want me. They want their sin. Now the issue is this. Not nations, not continents, not cities, not counties. It comes down to individuals. You need to look out for your own soul. You need to make your own decision for Christ. You need to make your own decision to walk now the remainder of your lives for the things of the Lord and to put your faith in him tonight for salvation. We could be in that very kind of of pocket in human history where it isn't where we sit and we wait for some gigantic thing to happen and then we come alongside it, but that you as an individual realize I've got to listen to God for myself, the lover of my soul, and make my own decision to follow him, whatever else the world does or doesn't do. I encourage you, all everyone to do that that doesn't know the Lord, and especially younger people. That is a decision that is is before you. And so this is the message that came back to Josiah. We're going to see in just a few minutes that Josiah is going to die uh, uh, in battle. And so sometimes people look at verse 20. They think it's a contradiction in the Bible where God said, you will be uh, gathered to your grave in peace and your eyes will not see all this calamity. So God told him he's going to be gathered to his grave in peace, and yet he dies in battle, a battle he shouldn't have engaged in. And so how is it that he was gathered to his fathers in peace? The Lord is talking here about the fact that Josiah would not see his judgment, the calamity that God would bring upon the world, not that he would not die uh, in the battle that he interjected himself into. Now, the king sent them to gather all of the elders of Judah and Jerusalem to him. And the kings went up to the house of the Lord with all the men. Uh, the king went up to the house of the Lord with all the men of Judah, all these leaders, and with him all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So this great crowd and the priests and the prophets and all the people, both small and great. And he read in their hearing, he did the reading, all the words of the book of the covenant 
covenant which had been found in the house of the Lord. We don't know if it was the entire Genesis uh, to Deuteronomy or he read the, the book of Deuteronomy to them, which was kind of an encapsulation of all of the law. But he begins to read to them in the hopes that the hearing of the word of God will have the same effect upon them that it had uh, uh, upon him. And then the king, following the reading of the scripture, stood by a pillar and he made a covenant before the Lord to follow the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all of his heart and all his soul to perform the words of this covenant that were written in this book. And all of the people uh, took a stand for the covenant. And so he made this great covenant and, and a, a commitment and dedicating himself to full obedience to the word of God. And uh, and the people then uh, declared that they would make that covenant uh, as well. It's a beautiful passage here. Uh, on revival that occurs uh, in here and some of the marks of revival that are learned in the passage. Revival always begins with a fresh discovery of the word of God. You can never ha- hope to have a revival independent by neglecting the word of God. It always occurs with a fresh discovery of the word of God. And then it's followed by a broken heart, a tender heart toward the commands of God in in that in that book. Then comes a commitment, as we see here, to obey God's word. And then that's followed by a repentance where there's this wholehearted obedience to God's word, whatever the cost. And that's the commitment that they've made here. And I'll tell you, this guy doesn't make a commitment without really being serious about it. And so he put his word into action in a dramatic way. Notice now what he does in the land. Now further fueled by the word of God. To bring the nation in line with God's word. And the king commanded Hilkiah the high priest and the priests of the second order and the doorkeepers to bring out of the temple of the Lord all of the articles that were made for Baal, for Asherah, for all the host of heaven. And he burned them outside Jerusalem in the fields of Kidron and he carried their ashes to Bethel. So here you've got all of this idolatry, all of these uh, idolatrous images that are in the very area of the temple. He takes them. And one of the things that's wonderful about studying Josiah's life is the, to read the strength of the words. He doesn't pull these things out and then sell them on eBay to the pagan nations around him. He took these things and he burned them. He burned them. So that no one could ever worship those things ever again that that he had captured as the king. And then he took and he carried the ashes of these images that he burned. He carried them to Bethel, which is where Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made all of Israel to sin, set up one of the golden calves in the north and where all of this idolatry was initiated in a massive way among God's people. It was legitimized there in Bethel. And he carried the ashes of of these images and he scattered it uh, uh, at Bethel as a condemnation uh, against the the uh, against the city and the influence that it had had upon the whole nation. And so the idea was to defile the shrine that was uh, there in Bethel. It's interesting. He takes out this 
image not only uh, made for uh, Baal, but also for Asherah. And Asherah was the ancient god of sex and war, sex and violence. This was her specialty. It was interesting. I was watching on television uh, quite a few months ago uh, now. And I had the psychologist or psychiatrist or whatever he was, some expert in the field. He was talking about his concern. We're not talking about a Christian at all. He's talking about his concern of the media on the minds and the lives of young people. And the particular concern that he was an expert on were these slasher films. And I've never seen a slasher film. I don't ever want to see a slasher film. Even when I was a kid and I didn't know the Lord, there's nothing about that that appealed to me at all. But his concern was that these movies are geared to 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16 year olds. And what they do is they combine sex and violence. So you are fashioning an entire generation to think of not only uh, illegitimate sex, but to think of sex in the context of violence. He said this is a crazy thing for a nation to do to its young people. And it's all the worship of Asherah. We think because we don't have some big Asherah, uh, you know, a statue down there in Hollywood that we don't worship Asherah today or the demon that was behind Asherah. But we do. Think about violence, the addiction to violence. You can become as addicted to violence as, as addicted to sex or any other sin. It's still the worship of Asherah. It's funny, you know, these movies come out and every time once in a while they have a movie that's a block, some kind of a blockbuster. I guess it goes over 100 million or 200 million or whatever. And sometimes they'll, you know, be some uh, gross kind of movie that people protest against and things like that. And, and, you know, a movie will make uh, in the course of its existence, you know, 200 or 300 million dollars and and all. And it's a terrible thing that happens. But it's nothing compared to the video games. The violence of the video games that allows mostly young people to take that control. And now they're a part of the movie. They're a part of the killing. In Japan, they're a part of the raping and molesting of young women at the subway stations. This is what they get to engage in with a control in their hand. That's, a, that's crossing a very significant uh, barrier in a person's conscience. So you've got this uh, kind of thing now in these games that will come out. And they're, you know, rated M for mature and all. And in a weekend, they can sell a billion dollars worth of these games. And it goes right under the surface. Nobody notices. But it's impacting the people of the world and impacting a nation. And it's all the worship of Asherah. And he gets rid of it. He burns it. He carries their ashes to Bethel. And then he removed, I like the strength of it, the idolatrous priests whom the kings of Judah had ordained to burn incense on the high places in the cities of Judah and in the places all around Jerusalem. And those who burned incense to Baal, to the sun, to the moon, to the constellations, to all the host of heaven. So he moves his influence beyond uh, Jerusalem into uh, the surrounding area of Judah. He removes all of these idolatrous priests that are involved in turning people away from the worship of the Lord to the worship of all of these false gods. And then he brought out 
the wooden image from the house of the Lord, took it to the brook Kidron outside of Jerusalem, and he burned it there in the brook Kidron. And then not satisfied with that, he ground it to ashes, and then he threw its ashes on the graves of the common people. I like this guy. I like this guy a lot. This isn't a guy. Number one, you don't have a lukewarm Christian here. And you don't have a guy who is trying to figure out, you know, what he should do, what he shouldn't do, and what do people expect of me, and what, how far should I go, how far shouldn't I go. This guy is completely consumed with a personal relationship with God and the realization that one day he's going to give an account to God for how faithful he was to what God had called him to do and that he was going to do it with all of his heart. There's no middle ground here, no in-between. And he takes even the ashes of this ground-up image that was brought out of the temple and he threw its ashes on the graves of the common people and the common people being the idolatrous people that had asked to be buried in nearness to this idol because of their reverence for the idol and he's in essence communicating that the proper place for this is all among the dead and then he tore down tore down the ritual booths of the perverted persons that were in the house of the of the Lord where the woven the women wove hangings for the wooden image and here you have the male uh, temple prostitutes that were in the very area of the temple they were there to be hired for homosexual sex and the worship of these false gods this is how bad it was this is at the temple in Jerusalem among the Jews. This is what God is watching every day, and He has been rejected for that. And so, this, He comes in here, Josiah does, and He removes all of these uh, uh, people. He tore down the ritual booths where this homosexual sex was going on. The women who wove the hangings were probably hangings that were dedicated to idols. The women themselves were probably female prostitutes. And he runs the whole group out. And he brought all the priests of, from the cities of Judah and defiled the high places where the priests had burned incense. From Geba to Beersheba, he also broke down the high places at the gates, which were at the entrance of the gate of Joshua, the governor of the city, which were left uh, of the city gate. And so idolatry filled the land. People were worshiping on all of these hilltops and made shrines and altars there instead of going to the temple, which is where God declared that they should worship him. And he comes in and it's a violation of the word of God. And so he breaks all of it down. Nevertheless, the priests of the high places did not come uh, to the altar of the Lord in Jerusalem, but they ate unleavened bread among their brethren. In other words, Josiah then rounded those folks up, those priests, and because they had violated their responsibility and their calling, he said, I'm not going to put you to death. You can eat the bread that's the portion that's given to the priests, but you can never again touch anything holy in the worship of the Lord. You have disqualified yourself from that. And then he defiled Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, that no man might take his, make his son or his daughter pass through the fire 
to Molech. And so here was the uh, practice, even in Jerusalem, where people would offer their firstborn child, uh, tumbling them down into a fire in the worship of Molech. And uh, he comes in and he uh, destroys all of that and he and and he desecrates the site so that no idolater could ever worship there again. And so as he uh, takes and and uh, defiles it, he defiles it in a way to just permanently put it out of business. Never could be a site for that purpose again. Then he removed the horses that the kings of Judah had dedicated to the sun. So he had all of this astrology going on at the entrance to the house of the Lord by the chamber of Nathan-Melech and the officer who was in the court, and he burned the chariots of the sun with fire. And so they had all of this worship of the sun and all of the gods that were involved in all of that. He comes in and he just burns everything associated with remove the horses that were associated uh, with all of that, brings it to an end. The altars that were on the roof, the upper chamber of Ahaz, which the kings of Judah had made, and the altars which Manasseh had made in the two courts of the house of the Lord, the king broke down. And then I like this. He pulverized them. That's a great word. He pulverized them there and he threw their dust into the Kidron Valley. And then the king defiled the high places that were uh, east of Jerusalem, which were on the south of the Mount of Corruption, where Solomon, king of Israel, had built for the for Ashtoreth, the abomination of the Sidonians. So we remember that King uh, Solomon he took the Mount of Olives that over it overlooked the temple, the Mount of Olives on the east. Beautiful place to observe the temple. No trip to Israel is complete without it. And he filled it with all of these uh, idols and false gods and altars to worship the false gods of his wives until God renamed the Mount, no longer called it the Mount of Olives, but he called it the Mount of Corruption. It had been completely ruined for him. And, and so uh, the, uh, Josiah comes on the scene and he begins to tear all of these things down. I, I like what, how these are described, these high places built for Ashtoreth, the abomination. God won't even call it a false god. This calls it an abomination of the Sidonians for Chemosh, the abomination of the Moabites for Milcom, the abomination of the people of Ammon. And he broke in pieces the sacred pillars. He cut down the wooden images and he filled their places with the bones of men. Again, to throw bones on something would permanently defile it. And that was uh, his intention. And so here is something that was in place that Solomon had put in place that existed for 300 years. Nobody touched it for 300 years. By now, it's a part of the historical society. It's under federal protection. Josiah comes in and says, 300 years, 300 schmears, what do I care about that? And finally, someone stands up and says, I don't care how old it is. I don't care if it's an antique times three now, 300 years old. It violates God's word and out it goes. And he destroyed it. God bless him. And moreover, you want to hear more? Some of you don't, but you're going to. Moreover, the altar that was at Bethel. So this is now, now he extends, extends his influence up into the north to, uh, to the uh, former northern kingdom of Israel. Bethel was where that, that one of those golden calves was set up. And the high place 
uh, which Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin, had made both the altar and the high place. He broke it down. So he comes in again. This thing is a historic. This thing's been around again for hundreds of years. He goes to that altar and he breaks it down. And not only he's not satisfied with that, he crushed it to powder. And then he burned the wooden image. And as Josiah turned, he saw the tombs that were there on the mountain. And he sent and he took the bones out of the tombs and he burned them on the altar. And these were the people that had again had died. They wanted to be buried near the worship of the golden calves. They were idolatrous people. So he took out their bones. He burned them on that altar to defile the altar. And he defiled it according to the word of God, which the man of God proclaimed, uh, who proclaimed these words. So we remember all the way back in First Kings chapter 13. When Jeroboam was still alive and he was offering sacrifices on that altar. And remember that young prophet came on the scene and he denounced the idolatry of Jeroboam. Jeroboam put his hand out and he ordered him to be arrested and his arm was paralyzed as a result of it in place. And that that prophet prophesied to Jeroboam and said, thus says the Lord, behold, a child. Josiah by name shall be born to the house of David and on you concerning the altar. He shall sacrifice the priests of the high places who burn incense on you and men's bones shall be burned on you. Prophecy concerning not only the destruction of that altar, but God gave them the very name of the king who would one day do it. And here is Josiah by name fulfilling that Wonderful prophecy. Uh, God's word is a sure word. And then he said, what gravestone is this I see? And as they looked at this gravestone, he was informed that it was the tomb of that young prophet who had come from Judah and proclaimed these things which uh, you have done against the altar of Bethel. And so he said, let him alone, let no one move his bones. And so they let his bones alone with the bones of the older prophet who had deceived him, who uh, came from Samaria. Now, Josiah took away all the shrines of the high places that were in the cities of Samaria. So he cleans out the northern kingdom of Israel as well, which the kings of Israel had made to provoke the Lord to anger. And he did to them according to all the deeds he had done in Bethel, and he executed all the priests of the high places who were there on the altars, and then he burned men's bones on them in order to defile them irreparably, and he returned to Jerusalem. And then the king commanded all the people, saying, let's keep the Passover. So he's rediscovered the word of God. He has made a, a cleansing of the land. Now is the time to keep the Passover to the Lord your God. As it is written in this book of the covenant, he says, all right, we're supposed to keep a Passover. Let's keep a Passover celebration of Israel's deliverance from the bondage of Egypt. And he kept a Passover, as we'll see later in Second Chronicles, that such a Passover surely had never been held uh, since the days of the judges who judged Israel, nor in all the days of the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah. But in the 18th year of King Josiah, this Passover was held before the Lord in Jerusalem. This Passover was so great that people even came not only from Judah celebrated, but also from Israel, those that were still left in the land and and, uh, loved the Lord. And moreover, Josiah put away 
those who consulted mediums and spiritists, uh, the household gods and idols, all the abominations that were seen in uh, the land of Judah and in Jerusalem, so that he might perform the words of the law that were written in the book that Hil- Hilkiah the priest had found in the house of the Lord. So he moves from dealing with this uh, big pockets of uh, public sin, the big altars and temples all over the place. And he even then moved into people's houses where they had their individual idols that were set up in their homes or maybe a booth outside of the house where they were uh, telling fortunes and this kind of thing under the influence of demonic spirits. And he comes in and he moves right down into the individual lives of the people and he prohibits all of that. Sometimes we look and, and we'll buy the line where people will say, well, what people do privately in their own in their own home is their own business. It's so dumb, I don't know what to say. I don't know about you, but I want the neighbor on my left hand side and my right hand side to be doing good things in their house. I don't want a crazy person next door that's all locked up in sin because that that person walks out that front door and they've been influenced by something. And now there's no telling them what they're going to do under that influence. We talk about victimless crime. There is no victimless crime. There is no victimless sin. Every deviation from the word of God, every violation of the word of God moves way beyond it influencing the individual person who does that act. It affects society as a whole. It affects a neighborhood. It affects a family. It affects a city. And so he takes realizing that and he moves it down and says, we're not going to just be holy in public. We're going to be holy in private because we're a unique people. And that's what God called us to do. And now before him, there was no king like him who turned to all turned to the Lord with and then circle this word, at least in your mind, with all his heart. And then notice here with all his soul and then again with all his might. According to all the law of Moses, nor after him did any arise like him. We wonder when Jesus says that we're to love uh, the Lord our God with all of our heart, all of our mind, all of our soul, all of our strength. And we say, man, that's just that's hard for me to get my mind around. Could you give me an illustration of it? Josiah. That's what it looks like. Now, the easy part is to talk about Israel 3000 years ago. The hard part is for us to go home and take that standard into that home and into our businesses and into our sphere of influence. And then to ask ourselves, what is my attitude toward the word of God? When I see the word of God and the standard that it has not up against the society that I live in, but up against my own life, the life that I love the most, that wants to preserve itself the most. How great is the distance between those two things? And then will I be? I can't change a nation. I can't change a state or a city. But then to what lengths will I go to 
to then cleanse and pulverize and burn and crush in my own life that which is, violates the standard of God's word. And then Josiah goes from just being a name on a page or just having to do with those Jews 3,000 years ago to now becoming very, very personal application in our own lives. This is what all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, all your strength looks like. And we need to hear it. It's important for us. Nevertheless, the Lord did not turn from the fierceness of his great wrath, which which his anger was aroused against Judah because of all the provocation with which Manasseh had provoked him. The nation was too far gone. And the Lord said, I will also remove Judah from my sight as I have removed Israel. And I will cast off this city, Jerusalem, which I have chosen and the house of which I said, my name shall be there. And the rest of the acts of Josiah and all that he did, are they not written in the book of Chronicles, the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah? And in his days, Pharaoh Necho, king of Egypt, went to the aid of the king of Assyria to the river Euphrates. And King Josiah went out against him and Pharaoh Necho killed him at Megiddo when he confronted him. And then his servants removed his body, uh, moved his body in a chariot from Megiddo, brought it down into Jerusalem. And then he was buried uh, honorably in his own tomb. And the people of the land then took Jehoiahaz, the son of Josiah, and appointed him and made him anointed him and made him king in his father's place. Give me just another couple of moments, and I, because there is one final addendum that we have to add to Josiah's life before we leave him, and that is his death. He makes a great mistake at his, at his death, and it's a mistake that is common, so we want to learn from it. We're told in Second Chronicles chapter 35 that when he goes out to battle against Pharaoh Necho, that Necho warns him, don't Fight me. You are meddling to your own hurt. The circumstances are this. Assyria is now a faltering empire. They are falling to the Babylonians. In fact, Babylon at this point in time in history has already conquered Nineveh. Egypt looks at this power shift in the Middle East and they don't like what they're seeing. They don't have a good relationship with Babylon. So Pharaoh Necho decides that he's going to come to the aid of Assyria in their battle and fight against uh, Egypt or uh, against the Babylonians to help them maintain power. When he begins to make his army to take it in that direction in order to stage them in the battle of necessity, he walks that army up through the coastline of Judah. Apparently, Josiah does not want Babylon to become the next world ruling empire. He is more comfortable uh, or or, uh, he he, he wants Babylon to become the next world world ruling empire. He's more comfortable with them than with uh, Egypt and with uh, with um, Assyria. So he feels that if Babylon is defeated, then Assyria will be strong again. 
Egypt will be strong again, and then maybe they will turn their target now on Judah and they'll conquer us. So he brings what is a very, very small army out to go against uh, against Pharaoh's uh, great army. And so he uh, attacks them there in the area of Megiddo. Pharaoh made it very, very clear to him that he wasn't looking for a fight with Judah. He didn't want to fight with Judah. He calls on Josiah not to engage him in battle. And, uh, and it appears from Second Chronicles that the Lord was behind that warning. Josiah doesn't pray about it. He doesn't heed the warning. And he engaged in the battle, and as a result, he was killed uh, in the battle. And here again, we have a good king who meddled to his own hurt. That is, he got involved in something that he had no business getting involved in. It's the second good king of Judah that did that. The first king was a king by the name of Amaziah when we looked at his life. They're both guilty of sticking their nose into business that they shouldn't have stuck their nose into. But the, but the similarity, it ends there. Each one of them was vulnerable to meddling, but they did so for different reasons. Amaziah meddled out of pride. Josiah meddled out of zeal. And this is a great lesson, an important lesson for God's people that are Josiah's. And God give us, please give us, a thousand, ten thousand, a million Josiahs in the body of Christ. Give us zealous men and women for the things of the Lord. But Josiahs, because of their zeal, they do have a weakness. As Oswald Chambers said, an unguarded strength is a weakness. And unless zeal is carefully guarded and well-directed, it, it can become a liability. And it did here in Josiah's life. And so this misdirected zeal in his life was effective in getting him in as much trouble as pride got Amaziah uh, uh, into. And so the importance of this, the zealous man, the zealous woman has a tendency because of our zeal to be drawn into all kind of battles that are not our battles to be drawn into every kind of circumstance or move to the right or move to the left, whatever's happening in the world, the events of the world that's surrounding us, just as Josiah was, instead of just being simply content to give our full attention to what God has called us to do. He's a great king, but he meddled to his own hurt, and he involved himself in a battle that God hadn't called him into, a battle that wasn't any of his business. I'll tell you, I love the lesson of this man's life. I don't have his zeal. I don't pretend to have it, but I have some measure of zeal. And I have allowed in my past, not often, but more than I'd like, a couple of times at least, my zeal to draw me into a situation that I had no business getting involved in. And it turned out very poorly for me. I thought I was going to help God in the situation. I was a liability because now he had to clean up the mess that I had made on top of now the mess that he was going to use somebody else to fix and to clean. So I think there's a good question for us Josiahs to ask ourselves about any battle that we're going to get in because we're prone to enter into battles. Is this any of my business? What does this have to do with me? A good question to ask before we put ourselves into any conflict. Otherwise, we're going to discover the truth 
of the writer of the book of Proverbs and one of the most amazing in terms of the image that it produces in your mind. Proverbs chapter 26, verse 17. He who passes by and meddles in a quarrel, not his own. Any of you ever done that? Okay, it's just a slight murmur. I feel better about it in my own life. He who passes by and meddles in a quarrel not his own is one is like one who takes a dog by the ears. Any of you ever done that? Or you only do that once, right? In other words, you're going to get bit. You're going to get hurt. And you're going to regret it. And it's true. And it's one of the great important lessons to learn. Yes, zeal a thousand times. This zeal of Josiah in our life. But to also realize it's a great thing. It's a powerful thing in the hands of the Lord. But it is a terrible thing when it comes under our own control and can get us into all kinds of problems and even mar our testimony a bit. Let's stand together and we'll pray. If you don't know Christ tonight, tonight's the night then for you to be saved. And there are going to be people up in front immediately after the service that would love to pray with you to invite Christ into your heart. And uh, you can, for the rest of your life, brag about the fact that on the night that you got saved, you sat through a Bible study that was an hour and 20 minutes uh, long. So I outdid myself. You know, I have a reoccurring nightmare. I have several of them, actually. I've got to see a psychiatrist about them. But one of them is that I just I hit go into some kind of a thing and I just keep on teaching until I empty the whole room out. Everybody ultimately just leaves. I don't know how many hours it takes to do that. Some of you be very respectful, might get into the third hour or whatever, order in pizzas. But anyway, so but we did want to finish this life tonight. And I do appreciate you being patient with me and allowing me to do that important lessons. If you need prayer for anything this evening, these men and women would love to pray with you, pray for you. Let's pray now. Lord, we thank you so much for Josiah's life and the instruction here. We're encouraged by his youth. We're encouraged by his zeal. We see, Lord, and many of us recognize the ability to overstep that great thing that you had put in his life in the form of this zeal and to get into something that was not going to turn out well for him. And so we pray for all that you've sown into our hearts today, tonight in your word, that it wouldn't die with us just closing out in this worship song and heading to our cars, but that all of this would then move into our own private lives, into our homes and our duplexes and our apartments and into our cars and into our television sets and our computers and our iPhones and our technologies and in all of the places that that we have control over in our life, Lord, and that we might have this same testimony that brought so much pleasure to you through Josiah, that that would be our testimony as well. And so continue to speak to us from this passage through this week until, Lord, by your grace and the power of your Holy Spirit, that we own all of this in our private lives as well. And we ask it of you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.